Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of addiction, abuse, assault, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. They say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, that sons will eventually follow in their father's footsteps, and that daughters, no matter how hard they resist it, will someday turn into their mothers. That must have been a frightening prospect for Brookie Lee West. Her mother, Christine Smith, wasn't exactly a role model, and yet their lives ended up revolving around each other. Their roots were so intertwined, they fed off the same highs and lows, and whatever one did, the other was sure to be right behind. So as Brookie got older and became more and more like Christine, she started solving her problems just like her mother taught her to, with intimidation, manipulation, and, when necessary, violence. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This is the second part of our Mother's Day special. We're finishing up the toxic tale of Brookie Lee West and Christine Smith, a venomous mother-daughter duo who sank their teeth into anyone who crossed them. Last week, we followed Brookie as she grew up in an unhealthy and unstable environment, subjected to the whims of Christine's emotions and addictions. We also covered Brookie's ill-fated marriage to Howard Simon St. John and how an alleged insurance scam left him with a bullet through his neck. Today, Brookie cuts ties with her husband for good, then starts a new life in Las Vegas with her mother. But while Christine flourishes in the city of sin, Brookie spirals out of control. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. 
On the evening of May 21, 1994, Howard Simon St. John barreled out of his house, clutching his neck, blood spilling through his fingers. The 35-year-old screamed to his neighbors for help. He'd just been shot by his wife. Within minutes, Los Banos police arrived on the scene. Howard was put in a helicopter and taken to a hospital in nearby Modesto, California. His wife, 40-year-old Brookie Lee West, was handcuffed and booked on felony assault charges. She freely admitted to pulling the trigger on her husband, but she explained that it had all been one terrible accident. Howard was drunk and aggressive. Brookie had feared for her life, so she grabbed her 32 caliber revolver and shot him in self-defense. However, according to several of Howard's friends, he initially believed that the attack was premeditated. His wife wanted him dead and buried so that she could use him as a scapegoat for insurance fraud. But Howard was very much alive. As he recovered in the hospital, his veins pumped with rage, and he vowed he'd get his revenge. A day after the shooting, he called the insurance claim investigator, Dwight Bell, and confessed. He drove Brookie's Jaguar all the way out to Milpitas and set it on fire, all because his wife wanted to claim it stolen and collect on damages. Needless to say, Dwight was elated. They agreed to meet as soon as Howard was released from the hospital. Meanwhile, Brookie sat in a jail cell, still claiming that she'd only fired her gun in self-defense. She explained that whenever Howard got really drunk, he became a different person. He'd get emotional and paranoid, and then he'd get angry. Before we continue with the psychology for this story, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. According to psychiatrists Ann Beck and Andreas Hines, only a small percentage of drinkers ever become aggressive. But for the minority that do, violence typically happens because alcohol consumption lowers cognitive function. Basically, people become so drunk, they lose the ability to process information and make smart decisions. As a result, they lash out. Doctors Beck and Hines also found that when it came to romantic relationships, alcohol-dependent men committed violence against women significantly more than men who weren't dependent. Brookie likely banked on these statistics. While Howard's closest friends swore that he was nothing but a teddy bear, it didn't change the fact that the towering alcoholic could easily overpower his wife. And given his criminal history, it seems the judge found Brookie's claims somewhat credible. Within a week of the shooting, she was released on her own recognizance. But that didn't mean Brookie was in the clear. Howard was still a very real threat. If he really wanted to hurt her, he could testify against her for both insurance fraud and attempted murder. She had to turn on the charm and win him back. On May 31st, days after Howard was released from the hospital, the husband and wife agreed to meet. At first, Howard was hesitant. He still thought she wanted him dead. But Brookie sweet-talked him. Maybe they should try therapy. Then, after he lowered his guard a bit, she told him that if he gave their marriage another chance, she'd give him the title to her Corvette, as well as the deed to her house. And just like that, Howard was back under Brookie's spell. 
Psychologist Dr. Madeline Fujar explains that there are many reasons why people stay in bad relationships, but one of the most common is related to self-esteem. When you see yourself as a high-value person, you generally expect more from the people you surround yourself with. That's because your standards are high, and rightly so. However, when you have low self-esteem, you're just thankful to get the bare minimum from your relationships. And because your standards are so low, you're more likely to stay in a bad relationship because your low expectations are being met. Simply put, you accept the love you think you deserve. And if you find a love that's remotely better than that, well, you're more inclined to cling on to that relationship for dear life. Before Brookie, Howard was out of work and living in a rehab facility. If he called it quits on their marriage, he would lose everything. The house, the car, and even the love, albeit a toxic one. Downgrading wasn't an option, so on June 1st, Howard met Dwight Bell and recanted his entire statement. He swore that no insurance fraud had taken place. When he'd made the initial call, he was on so many painkillers, he didn't know what he was saying. He just wanted to get back at his wife for shooting him. With that, Dwight's investigation came to an end. But Howard's kind gesture wasn't enough to solve all the problems in their marriage. The next night, the husband and wife got into another domestic dispute. Once again, Brookie claimed Howard got physical, so she ran to a neighbor's house and begged them to call the police. When the authorities turned up, Howard confirmed Brookie's version of events. Despite this, she didn't want to press charges. Brookie simply asked an officer to drop her off at a restaurant. She needed to cool off, clear her head. There, as the clock ticked closer to midnight, Brookie brooded over her marriage. Maybe, just maybe, her mother had been right all along. Howard simply wasn't a good match. And if that was the case, Brookie needed to make this separation permanent. Over the next few days, she met with a paralegal and began paperwork for a divorce. But while Brookie was confident a fresh start was on the horizon, the same couldn't be said of Howard. In the early morning hours of June 6th, an outdoorsman scouted the grounds of the Sequoia National Forest. He'd hoped to find the perfect spot to go fishing. Instead, he discovered a man's corpse sprawled out along a riverbank. His head was covered by a plastic bag, his pants were partly lowered, and he had two gunshot wounds on his body. Howard St. John was dead. Up next, Brookie Lee West becomes suspect number one. What could be more shocking than uncovering the deep, dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Carter from the ParCast series, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction and discover that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. From the government's link to Bigfoot and the otherworldly secrets of the Vatican, to the Grateful Dead's role in the spread of LSD, and more. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may just be outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. 
Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1994, Howard Simon St. John was murdered. Investigators believed that the 35-year-old was fatally shot in the back at some point between June 4th and 5th at an unknown location. Afterwards, his body was dumped along the banks of the Thule River in Sequoia National Forest, nearly 200 miles from his home. Given their tumultuous relationship, investigators quickly zeroed in on his wife, 40-year-old Brookie Lee West. But when they accused her of murder, she swore she was innocent, and she had the receipts to prove it. After their fight on June 2nd, Brookie cooled off at a late-night restaurant. Over a cup of tea, she came to the sobering conclusion that her marriage to Howard was done. She didn't want to see him ever again. So instead of going home to Los Banos, she told investigators that she hitched a ride to San Jose. The next morning, she rented a car, then drove to work in Palo Alto. During a break, she sought some legal advice and began filing paperwork for both a divorce and a restraining order against her husband. That night, she checked into a motel in Santa Clara. On the 4th, she reconnected with her mother, 62-year-old Christine Smith. The two spent the day shopping at the mall, just like the good old days. But as the sun began to set, Brookie realized she had some more work to finish up. She dropped her mother off, then returned to her office in Palo Alto. There, Brookie received an alarming call from her husband. Howard said he'd found just over $3,000 hidden in a kitchen drawer. And to spite her, he was gonna take that money and gamble it away in Reno. That was fine by Brookie. With him out of the house, she felt it was safe to go back. Still, she didn't want to take any chances and run into Howard on her own. So on the morning of the 5th, she scooped up her mother and the two made the drive back to Los Banos. According to Brookie, she never saw Howard and didn't even hear about his death until after his body had been identified. Brookie was adamant she was innocent. From the moment she left Howard to the moment she returned home, Brookie's movements were all tracked. She even had a corroborating witness. That is, if you count Christine, and I'm not so sure you should. Christine was never the most reliable narrator. She had a penchant for exaggerating details to make herself larger than life. What's more, she had an incentive to side with her daughter, Months earlier, Brookie had kicked her out of the house. Since then, Christine had been living out of a van in a Santa Clara parking lot. But now that Howard was dead, the door was open for Christine to return home to Los Banos. So as investigators questioned her about the past few days, Christine happily verified Brookie's timeline, reiterating that her daughter had receipts for everything. But it was all a little 
too convenient. I mean, who actually keeps track of all their receipts? Besides, Brookie was really the only person with a clear-cut motive to want Howard dead. So authorities kept their focus close to the Los Banos home. They questioned neighbors about Howard, Brookie, and Christine. And they quickly learned that no one liked any of them. Howard was a belligerent drunk, Brookie was rude, and Christine was an oddball who said the craziest things. From there, they spoke to Howard's friends over at the rehabilitation center, and they all echoed the same tune. Brookie had been a bad influence on Howard, so much so that she'd allegedly pressured him to commit fraud. After that, authorities attempted to verify all of Brookie's alibis, including her so-called receipts. Some checked out. Others weren't so credible. For example, while she'd certainly clocked in at work on the evening of June 4th, no one was at the office Saturday night to confirm her story. And the access card to let her in only worked one way. It didn't keep track of when she left. Meaning, Brookie could have swiped into the Palo Alto office, then walked right out. This would have given her enough time to drive home to Los Banos, kill Howard, then cruise on over to the Sequoia National Forest to dump his body. And according to the rental car report, Brookie drove over 1,000 miles over the course of three days. Yet Brookie claimed she'd only driven around the Bay Area. In total, it's unlikely that she'd gone more than a couple hundred miles. Needless to say, Brookie's story wasn't adding up. But when investigators brought their findings to the district attorney's office, prosecutors thought that the evidence was circumstantial at best. There was no way to definitively prove that Brookie had been the one to shoot her husband, at least not the second time. As a result, Brookie was never charged nor convicted in the killing of Howard Simon St. John, and his murder remains unsolved. That meant Brookie was free to move on with her life. But as the cloud of suspicion hung over her in Los Banos, she wanted a fresh start somewhere else. So in late 1997, she decided to make Las Vegas her second home. Brookie got a place for her and Christine at the Orange Door Apartments. It wasn't exactly the nicest place off the strip, but the other tenants were kind and welcoming. Christine, in particular, loved her new digs. She'd always been a bit of a character. Now, she was with her own kind. All the neighbors loved chatting her up and hearing her wild stories. Brookie, on the other hand, was having a hard time coping. At some point in 1997, she apparently had a nervous breakdown. Things got so bad that she checked herself into a Las Vegas hospital for psychiatric care. Today, it's generally assumed that nervous breakdowns happen in extreme circumstances, like you have to be really sick to go through one. But according to social and cultural historian Peter Stearns, this wasn't always the case. At the start of the 20th century, nervous breakdowns were often considered a completely normal response to stress. When things got too overwhelming, people were allowed to break away from society and reset. No judgments, no questions asked. But to really understand Stern's point, it might help to explain what a nervous breakdown actually is. According to neuroscientist Dr. Dean Burnett, it's a moment in time when an individual finds that the number of things they are able to cope with is lower than the number of things they have to cope with. Based on that definition, it's certainly possible that we've all experienced a mental breakdown or two. 
Brookie had more stressful experiences than the average person. As a child, she was exposed to her parents' drug use, alcohol addiction, and violence. As an adult, she went through a string of bad relationships and lost custody of her own child, albeit by choice. The trauma of it all was overwhelming. As Brookie peeled back the layers of her life at the mental health facility, she realized that her mother was at the center of all of her problems. With that realization, medical professionals at the facility reportedly advised Brookie it was in her best interest to set boundaries with Christine, or better yet, cut all ties. She'd done it before when she kicked Christine out of the house in 1994, and it seems Brookie was more than happy to do it again. After a month in the ward, she returned to society with a renewed sense of clarity. She was more honest, more outgoing, but mostly she was ice cold to Christine. She spoke ill of her mother to friends and neighbors and even cussed her out in public. In early 1998, she threatened to take Christine's beloved pet chihuahua, Chi-Chi, and give it away. Then in mid-February, when Christine's health declined, Brookie refused to be her caretaker any longer. The 44-year-old allegedly gave her mother an ultimatum. She could either live in a facility for senior citizens or go live with her son, Travis Smith. If this really happened, I'm not sure what Christine was thinking. Out of those options, she'd have likely thrived in an elder care facility. She'd receive proper medical attention and have an endless supply of people to talk to. But according to Brookie, Christine chose the latter. Then again, it's not like Brookie gave her mother much time to process her thoughts. Once the 65-year-old settled on living with Travis, Brookie threw some of Christine's essentials into a bag and packed it into her car. Then, in the dead of night, she shuttled her mother over 500 miles northwest to San Jose. But here's the thing, Travis was living on the streets and all of Christine's neighbors knew it. 67-year-old Alice Wilsey was particularly close with Christine. Whenever Brookie was away in California, Alice took Christine to her doctor's appointments and helped her run errands. She also listened to Christine's colorful stories. She knew about the time Christine almost killed a man for crossing her. She was all too familiar with Brookie's failed relationships, and she knew that Travis dealt with addiction and didn't have a home. So when Brookie claimed that Christine was living it up with Travis in an apartment, Alice grew suspicious. Days later, Alice saw some of Christine's most treasured possessions in the dumpster. She approached Brookie and told her that her mother would naturally want those things whenever she came back, to which Brookie said, quote, she's not gonna come back. With that, Alice's suspicions fully set in. But that's all she had, suspicions. Meanwhile, Brookie carried on like everything was more or less the same. She continued to stop in at the Orange Door Apartments from time to time, and whenever she ran into her neighbors, she regaled them with stories about how Christine was doing in San Jose. But by November of 1998, Alice had had enough. After nine months of radio silence from Christine, she was prepared to go to the police. Alice wrote a letter flat out stating that she thought Brookie had killed her own mother. But after thinking it over, Alice felt the authorities wouldn't take her seriously. So she never sent the note to anyone, and Christine became a distant memory. Until February 5th, 2001, 
That day, 63-year-old Bill Unruh, the manager at a Las Vegas storage facility, received a complaint. There was a foul smell emanating from one of the units. He scoured the two-story building, searching for the source of the smell, and eventually stopped in front of unit number 317. It was a five-foot-by-five-foot locker belonging to 47-year-old Brookie Lee West. She'd rented it back in June of 1998 and always paid months in advance. He called Brookie's listed number several times, but she never picked up. So Bill unlocked the unit to see what the problem was. Despite the revolting smell, everything inside seemed normal enough. There were your typical storage boxes stacked one on top of the other. There was also a pile of books on Satanism and witchcraft, which, okay, was somewhat creepy. Then in the back, Bill stumbled upon a 45-gallon plastic garbage can. The lid had been sealed tightly with a combination of green plastic wrap and duct tape. At the very bottom, a black liquid oozed out from it. That's when Bill called the cops. The authorities immediately suspected that something dead was rotting inside. So after obtaining a search warrant, investigators took a box cutter and carefully cut through the wrapping and tape. When they opened the lid, they saw a layer of dead maggots floating at the top of the bin. Beneath that were the mostly liquefied remains of Christine Smith. Coming up, the witch hunt begins. Now, back to the story. In February of 2001, Las Vegas authorities found the liquefied remains of Christine Smith. The elderly woman had been shoved into a 45-gallon garbage can with a plastic bag over her head. Unfortunately, her body was so badly decomposed, the coroner's office couldn't determine her cause of death. They couldn't even confirm whether or not she was still alive when she was taped inside the barrel. Given that the storage unit had been rented by Christine's daughter, 47-year-old Brookie Lee West, all signs pointed to her as the main suspect. The problem was they had no idea how to reach her. She wasn't picking up the number that she had listed. And while she rented an apartment a few miles from the Las Vegas Strip, the technical writer spent a good chunk of her time living and working in California's Bay Area. Still, they went ahead and obtained a search warrant for her Las Vegas apartment. And inside, they found some damning evidence. First, there was the key that opened the door to the storage unit. Second, according to a stack of bank statements, Brookie had been depositing her mother's social security checks into a shared account for the past few years. And as if they needed any more proof, investigators determined that a thumbprint lifted from the duct tape on the trash bin was a match for Brookie. It was an open and shut case. All they needed to do now was wait for Brookie to come back home. In the meantime, investigators did their homework. They discovered the make and model of her car. They also asked her neighbors to alert them whenever she returned. Sure enough, on the night of February 8th, one of her neighbors clocked Brookie and alerted the police. But by the time they arrived, she'd already left the complex. 
But by chance, as one of the investigators made his way back home, he spotted Brookie's car parked outside a convenience store. Patrol units flocked to her location, and before Brookie could process what was happening, she was put in handcuffs and taken in. When investigators revealed that her mother had been found rotting inside a garbage can, Brookie wasn't surprised by any of the disturbing details, because of course, she'd put Christine there herself. Brookie explained that the two had rekindled their relationship at some point in 1999 and that Christine had wanted to come home. So Brookie drove to San Jose, picked her mother up, then headed back to Vegas. But the journey was all too much for the 65-year-old. Christine asked Brookie to stop at a hotel so she could get some rest. Brookie pulled over and the two got some shut-eye. But the next morning, she discovered that Christine had died of natural causes. Honest. Now, Christine had severe lung problems. One medical expert even claimed that the age of her lungs was equivalent to 132 years. Another medical professional confirmed that this alone could have been fatal. So it's possible this was actually what happened. Of course, that didn't explain why Brookie didn't call for help. To which Brookie replied that she didn't reach out to the authorities because she was scared they wouldn't believe her. She'd already been suspected of murder once before. To avoid the same nightmare, she hid Christine's body, along with some of her possessions, and locked them away in the storage unit. But perhaps this fateful decision had more to do with Brookie's own dependency on her mother. Though she'd been eager to cut ties with Christine, it's possible she wasn't ready to face the fact that her mother was really gone. As such, it's possible that putting Christine in the storage unit was Brookie's way of keeping her mother alive. According to sociologist Nancy Burns, when people are grieving the loss of a loved one, they can often place emotional value on objects as a physical form of attachment to the person that died. In this particular instance, the object was Christine's literal body. But again, perhaps this was a testament to how much Brookie actually loved her mother. Despite all of the hostility, the two had spent most of their lives together as one living, breathing unit. Ever since Brookie had returned from the army, she had taken care of her mother the best she could. She paid many of Christine's bills, covered her meals, and even shuttled her from place to place. Brookie was more than a good daughter. She was Christine's best friend. She even told a reporter, quote, at most I'm guilty of not reporting my mother's death. Authorities didn't feel the same way. They charged the 47-year-old with first-degree murder, and her trial was set for the summer of 2001. In the meantime, Las Vegas prosecutors built their case. During discovery, they learned that Brookie wasn't just collecting her mother's social security checks, she had also tried to get access to her brother's. But Travis hadn't been seen or heard from in years, suggesting Brookie had been lying from the very beginning. It also led investigators to believe that Brookie may have killed her own brother as well. But that's never been proven. Around this time, media publications learned about the stack of books on the occult and witchcraft found in the storage unit, and soon, word spread that Brookie was a devout Satanist. 
Brookie denies this to this day, so I won't go into it all, but needless to say, Brookie was attracting a lot of attention, both from the media and the authorities. When cops in California heard about Christine's death, they reached out to Vegas police and told them about Howard Simon St. John's unsolved murder, and how he'd also been found with a plastic bag covering his face. To investigators, it was clear that Brookie was behind both murders. But while California authorities couldn't convict her for Howard's death, they hoped Las Vegas police could nab her for Christine's. The problem was pathologists still couldn't determine whether or not Christine had actually been murdered. Given her string of health problems, it was certainly possible that she died of natural causes, just like Brookie had said. But if investigators couldn't prove that Christine had been killed, then they couldn't really convict Brookie for murder. That meant Brookie had a good chance of walking free after killing a loved one, quite possibly for the second time. However, the Las Vegas prosecutors weren't about to quit so easily. They got in touch with forensic entomologist Dr. Neil Haskell. According to Dr. Haskell, most corpses are covered by blowflies within minutes of death. That's because these insects have extremely strong receptors and can smell death from miles away. As a result, they're typically the first colonizers to help jumpstart the decomposition process of a body. But there was no trace of blowflies or their larvae on Christine's remains. To Dr. Haskell, that meant she'd been sealed inside the garbage can within moments of her death, or even worse, when she was alive. There was simply no way Brookie could have suddenly found her mother dead in the hotel room, then had time to scrounge up a garbage bin, some plastic wrap and duct tape, to then meticulously seal her in. If that much time had passed, there definitely would have been blowflies. From the prosecution's perspective, this meant Christine's murder had to have been premeditated. With that, Brookie's fate was sealed. On July 19, 2001, the 48-year-old was convicted of murder. She was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. Of course, Brookie wasn't going to sit back and accept the ruling. In 2003, she attempted to overturn her case, arguing that there wasn't enough evidence for a conviction, but her pleas went ignored. Then in 2004, Brookie got a second chance to clear her name. A man claiming to be Brookie's brother checked into a mental health facility in San Jose, and if Travis was still alive, that meant someone could corroborate her whole story. Unfortunately, the man disappeared before anyone could confirm his identity. And just like that, Brookie's shot at freedom was gone. Well, almost. In the summer of 2012, the 59-year-old prisoner got her hands on some street clothes and swapped them with her jumpsuit. Then, as her fellow inmates headed for their morning meal, she made a beeline towards the front gate. Brookie likely hoped the guards would think she was just a visitor, but the correctional staff were all too familiar with the lifer. They quickly apprehended Brookie and put her in solitary confinement. To this day, Brookie remains behind bars, but while the court seems certain of Brookie's guilt, it's difficult to say what really happened to Christine Smith. It's possible Brookie was telling the truth, 
Maybe her mother died of natural causes, and Brookie simply made the foolish decision to hide it from authorities. Then again, it's also possible she'd simply done what she'd been raised to do, use violence to solve her problems. If Brookie really committed matricide, perhaps her ending is only fitting. For nearly four decades, the mother-daughter duo were inseparable. Now, she'll leave the world the same way as Christine, rotting away in a small box. Thanks again for listening to our Mother's Day special on female criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Brookie Lee West, amongst the many sources we used, we found Witch by Glenn Pewitt extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. And if you want to hear more stories like Brookie and Christine's, be sure to check out my other podcast, Malicious Moms. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Jane O, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 